Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Today, my guests are Dr. Chris Conda and Dr. Lori Brown. Um, Lori Brown is an emeritus professor in the geoscience department here at UMass Amherst. She's also the former president of the geomagnetism, paleomagnetism, and electromagnetism section of the American Geophysical Union. She's also the first woman faculty on the geoscience department at UMass. Um, she was raised in Hamilton, New York, uh, a small town in upstate New York, uh, home of Colgate University. She has a PhD in geophysics from Oregon State University, um, and she studies the past history of the Earth's magnetic field as it is recorded in rocks. Thank you for joining us, Lori. Thank you. Also joining is Dr. Chris Condit. He is a retired professor of geology and has been on the Leverett Town Library Board of Trustees for 28 years. Um, he grew up in Northern Virginia, but he also lived in Northern Arizona and New Mexico for 15 years before settling down in Leverett, Massachusetts. Um, he has a PhD in geoscience from New Mexico University um, and also a commercial pilot's license. Um, he studies volcanology, volcanic hazard, planetary geology, and um, has been an instructor for NASA astronauts from 2008 to 2014. Yes. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. You're most welcome. Also, I should probably mention that you, you're married. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Did you meet here? No, the love no. story is science. We met doing science. <laughs> what kind of, what were we doing together? Out in the field. Christopher was working in, um, North, in Arizona mapping a big volcanic field. And he wanted somebody of the expertise that I do, the paleomagnetism, to work on the rocks he was working on. And so a mutual friend introduced us. And so I first met him was when I flew out to Arizona to work in the uh, volcanic field. Did, was it love at first sight or did it take a while? It was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> it was. This is a really good story. I also want to introduce my co-host, um, Jennifer Miskowski. She's a local comedian and hosts um, an open mic the second Thursday of every month at Holyoke Hummus. It's called uh, Lady Haha. -Ha. It's called Lady Haha. Oh, yeah. It's for women and non-binary comics. Exactly. Nice. Um, and she's also a radio personality on Bear Country 95.3 FM. She hosts Bear Swaps every Saturday morning from 8 to 10. Thank you for joining us, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> we should jump back into the love story. Oh, yeah, I want to hear the love story really bad. <laughs> well, um, so we worked in Arizona collecting rocks, and then I came back to Massachusetts, where I was already a professor at, at, um, at UMass, and Christopher continued. He was working on his Ph.D. at that point. And so you and had the upper hand. I did. That's nice. That's nice. I, have, I have a thing about women with power. Good, good. <laughs> Alpha women. And so eventually, after he finished his PhD, he, he moved back here. At first, not too happily, as he had really enjoyed the West, but mm. he has gotten to be quite addicted to Happy Valley here. So can I ask questions born of ignorance? Because I'm not a scientist, mm. and I don't really know a lot about your science. And also, I asked Laura... If in advance I should study up so that I could ask <laughs> the right questions. And she said, don't. It's better if you don't. So I yeah. came in with 100% ignorance. So you were talking about paleogeology. Can you talk about what that is? Okay. So what I study, I'm actually a geophysicist, and I study um, paleomagnetism. So the Earth has a magnetic field that we... Recognize every time you use a compass. Sure, sure, you know I'm with you. North is. But this magnetic field has persisted over the history of the Earth. And so when rocks are first formed, like when a lava flow first comes out of a volcano and cools, it's cooling in the Earth's magnetic field, and it records that in the rock, in the mineralogy of the rock. Wait, hold on a second. So, <laughs> so, so, the, the, um, the, the magnetic field of the Earth switches around, though, right? It moves around. It but does. it stays the same in a rock? Well, it gets locked in at the time that the rock cools so or is formed. 
this is blowing my mind. Laura's just nodding her head like, duh. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, she really pulls that. No, I feel the same way that you do about it, which is why I'm like happy that you are understanding how exciting and cool it is that this yeah, happens. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Good. good. Thank so you. you can go and sample old rocks, and then in the lab in my lab, I can measure the magnetic field in the old rock, and you can compare it to the present day. And yes, we'll see that the field has moved around. Wow. All right. Okay. So what's <laughs> cool is you get you, you you collect a sample of the rock, and then somebody like me comes along and says, okay. I want to know what the, the age of that rock is. And so I collect a big sample of it and send it to a laboratory that uses radiometric age dating. And uh, they analyze the rock and say, this rock is 1.1 million years old. And then Laurie looks at the Earth's magnetic field and sees the direction it's, it's pointing. And she has a piece of data that then she can compare to other rocks that we've looked at relative age by one lava flow on top of another, so the one underneath it's older. And then you keep looking at stacks of rocks like that, and you go down little ways, and you get another radiometric age date. But you don't get many, because they cost 500 bucks a pop. Uh-huh. And then you can look at the direction of that one and see how the Earth's magnetic field has changed, and then try and understand, to some degree, why it's changed. I used it more to look at relative ages because we know pretty well the Earth's magnetic field reversal pattern through the last five million years. Oh, and that's actually my next question. So can you use the magnetic field, like the direction of the magnetic field, to figure out how old it is if you don't want to do the radio radio dating? Indeed. In in some places. So in really young rocks, like five million-year-old rocks, you know, from present back five million years, we have a really detailed record of how the magnetic field reversed back and forth, north to south, north to south. And so you can sample rocks in that age and you can get them, you know, you can put them in, in sort of position so you can get dating from it. Huh. Fascinating. <laughs> it yeah. is. Well, so there's it's also fun this, there's this component of the magnetic field changes, but also the rocks are moving, right? Well, this is, you then get into problems with older rocks because the continents have been moving around right as well as the magnetic field changing so i also work on really old rocks mostly in norway right now and some of them are like uh, 900 million years old and so they're on a continent that has moved all around and when they actually were formed these rocks the continent they were on which we call baltica was in the southern hemisphere so you can use the magnetic field to help you figure out how these continents have moved through time. Huh. Well, well, well. <laughs> plate tectonics. Right. Yes. So, yeah. That's well, I remember plate tectonics from, right. from yeah. ninth grade well, this or eighth is, grade. This is, yeah, yeah. Key, that's this really, is the yeah. key thing. That this is looking at it back through time. Paleomagicians like Laurie are the ones that really put the, the final nail in the lid in terms of us understanding plate tectonics. Huh. Right, so this is the tool that was really yeah. used to yeah. understand well, how, that, yeah. how those continents yeah. were moving. Yeah. This yeah. is the primary. Cool. Yeah. I feel like I should jump in and say that I know Lori and Chris pretty well because they're in my department. Lori's on my committee. Um, and one way that I've gotten to know you is that I take this uh, class, uh, Planetary Geology Seminar, so we get together and read papers about planetary geology. So a lot of what you study on the Earth has applications to these other planets. I don't know if you want to talk about your interests in... Planetary, planetary geology. geology yeah. Well, Christopher's the real planetary person. Yeah, I just I had the good fortune to get my master's degree at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and while I was working on my master's degree uh, back in the early 1970s, in 1971, uh, Mariner 9 was the first planetary probe to go out and orbit another planet and continuously orbit Mars and send back images of the whole surface of the planet. So we had a whole new planet to try and understand geologically. It was just a really wonderful kind of a uh, fortuitous situation for me to be in. And so I was hired as a student, a graduate student, to look at at, um, these images of the surface of the planet and mostly, initially, just to count the number of craters in, in 
different areas so that we could get a relative age based on the number of craters in, in, on different surfaces. So think of it this way. If you get a lava flow that erupts, it, it, it erupts on a surface and, and gives you a new blank slate. That lava flow sits there for a while and meteors come in and hit it. And so you get an additional number of meteors the older it gets. Okay, so then what you can do is we, ha we have uh, looked at that very carefully on the moon and now on Mars and on Venus and, and Mercury also and other satellites. And what we do is we can say, okay, this surface has this many craters per square area. If it has more craters per square area, it's probably older. And then we can look at that and compare it to areas on the moon that we have radiometric ages on. And for lava flows like the Mari and the moon, the dark areas, those yeah. are all lava flows. And we have return samples and we've dated those little puppies and then we see how many craters there are on those surfaces. And then areas that we don't have radiometric age control on, we can compare the relative density and get an approximate age. And so that way we can look at you know, geologic processes on Mars and other planets. Well, now I have a follow-up question based on what you've just said. Huh. So right now, the Earth has plenty of active volcanoes. Yes. And you're talking about volcanic activity on all these planets. Are there any active volcanoes on other planets that we know of at present? That's an excellent question. Um, probably, well, there are certainly active volcanoes on outer planet satellites, like the planet Io, the, the moon Io. It's that's or on Saturn, right? Jupiter. Jupiter. Just yeah, testing. One of the <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, what was really, really cool was we were sending out a probe to look at at uh, the the moons of of Jupiter, and somebody wrote a really interesting paper saying, "I'll bet that the plant, the the moon Io, has active volcanism on it." <coughs> so Why did the person bet the, that? Where did they get that idea? Well, they got the idea because they realized this, this, this moon was orbiting Jupiter in a slightly elliptical orbit. So in some, place, some places of the orbit, it's closer into the planet, and some places it's further away. So where it, that, that means the whole surface of the planet is flexing mm. in and out because of the gravitational attraction being much stronger close in than further out. And they, they, they realized that that process would create friction and heat, internal heat, and cause melting. And then the likelihood, given that we have a guess on how dense that, that planet is, was that there would be volcanism. Well, here comes this. So this, this, this person <laughs> publishes this paper. And here comes this little probe coming in there to take pictures of all the other satellites, or many of them. And, 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 and lo and behold, they see a volcanic plume. The actual eruption was, it was happening. Talk so about a scientific coup. Can that is really something. I'm sure that person has to have a feather in their cap about it now. But yeah. here's another follow-up <laughs> question. So, and again, all born of ignorance. This is not my area at all. Yeah. So, is, does that speak at all to the age of the planet? Or is it really just a function yes. of... Oh, yeah. That means the that whole surface well, of that planet is, is, is going on and changing right now. Right. And then does that also okay? I'm just my my brain is all over the place because I'm kind of kind of in a state right now. Yeah. So all right. So we're that's a that's a that's a a question about the the age of I O. Yeah. And then also and and so you're saying that it's from the movement that that's creating the heat and the friction. Yeah. And so is that gravitational what's, attraction? Yeah, gravity. Okay, great. Flexing. Flexing. Yeah. So that means and we friction. know that the Earth flexes because I remember that from Earth science. Yeah. yeah. And so that is, is that related to why we still have active volcanoes here? In part. Okay. And so then does that also say something about the age of the Earth? Yes, it does. Looks like it's part no, though. Indirectly. Yeah. Part no. Well, well, okay. What you have to separate is the age of the surface, yeah. which is what the volcanism shows that the surface is very young. Yeah. But the age of the body can be very old. So we know the Earth is very old, not from the volcanology, but from doing radiometric dating on, on rocks. But the surface of the Earth is very young, 
because we have all this plate tectonics and activity going on and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like Io is an old moon, but its surface is very young right now. It's always being resurfaced. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this is gonna sound like it's out of nowhere, <laughs> but one of the things that's been vexing me as a human person who doesn't understand things mm. is the part about we keep um, taking all the oil out of the out of the middle of the earth, and then um, and then there's like um, I don't know. It just seems like we just keep taking it and taking it, and I know that that creates problems, including but not limited to some of the earthquakes that have happened related to fracking and all that stuff. Um, but as things come out of the earth, the other things are going back in. Like one of the things that's been kind of, I guess where, where, we're, where we're going here is, how is the earth not getting bigger and bigger and bigger? But everything else is going in, right? No. Like things are getting, going, going back in and then like other what? things are coming out like in a cycle, is that what's happening? Well, plate tectonics is, cy is cyclic and things go in and things come out. You know, so the plates are being subducted, remember, you know, and so they, they go down underneath the, the trenches. And that material, which was up on the surface, goes down inside. But it's not like we're making um, totally new material. That material was on the surface. Oh, and right, now it's right. down inside. It's, but it's like a cycle of it's, it's going in and then coming yeah, out correct. and then yeah. in exactly. and out. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think it was like yeah. new, new. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I'm with you. Right. Yeah. So yeah. There's no such thing stays, as anything new. So it sort well, of stays the same size, and you're just moving material recycling. around, recycling, right. essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so when you take the oil out of the earth, um, that's a little different because we do then burn it up or do stuff with it like that. But it's really volumetrically an extremely small amount compared to the volume of the earth, the oil that we take out. And it comes out from the very uppermost crust of the earth. It doesn't come out of the deep earth. It, it's in rocks that have been deposited and they're just right near just the surface. It's thin skin on the surface of the earth. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that, but I believe you because you're an expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I think most um, diagrams of the earth are not always correctly scaled because the crust of the earth is so small compared to like the mantle of the earth yeah. and I think that can lead to misconceptions you know so like they make it look bigger just so they can draw it in right you know and same with like the atmosphere Yeah, like the crust of the ocean is like 10 kilometers thick so six miles thick and the crust of most of the continent is about three times that depending you know it's thicker under the uh, Himalayas for example usually thicker you know, but but um, but relative to the whole Earth, the crust is very very thin. It's like if you took a grapefruit, yeah, and the crust of the Earth would just be the uppermost outer part of the skin. The yellow part, not even the white part. Not even the white part. Okay, all right, that's a yeah. good analogy. Yeah. And Thank that's you. where the oil is is in just that little yellow part. Then how do we have so much of it? We've been burning <laughs> it for over a hundred years. <laughs> oh, we're even well, tiny. <laughs> but remember, I mean, it's a pretty big globe that we're dealing with and that oil is coming from all different places but it's going to be used up oh it's i know not, i don't know why we're not, we're not having a panic about this well, well some of us are. Oh, i know some of us are including yeah. this one right here yeah. me all right back to your science i'm sorry that we have I've hijacked <laughs> no, no, no. i feel and like something oh, no. no i was just going to say get into something more esoteric like <laughs> paleomagnetism yeah, right. yeah maybe we could go back and like um you could talk, Lori, about how you ended up in this field of paleomagnetism. Like, what brought you to that Oh, field? well, that's sort of a long story, but I'll make that's it okay. short. <laughs> I was a math major in college. Okay. Uh, mainly because math came easy to me, and I thought I'd be a math teacher. And so I went to college, and I majored in math. But what I really liked was the outdoors in the mountains, and it never dawned on me that I should major in something like geology. But I took geology as a senior. And... I went to the professor about two weeks in and said, this is it, I want to be a geologist. <laughs> so he was very helpful. And I went to graduate school right away with my one year of geology because it was 1968. And it was the heyday of Vietnam and the draft. And there were very few men going to graduate school. Uh. So graduate school started, which earlier hadn't paid any attention to women, took women students and they also took women students like me who weren't very prepared although I <laughs> for geology although I had all the other sciences yeah. um, and then I got into paleomagnetism because of personal 
personalities. I was going to be a structural, study structure of, of rocks, but I was... Um, Faults and folds and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, but um, the person teaching paleomagnetism and running that was much more interesting personality, and so I went into that. Wow. That speaks a lot to how um, people follow interests and also people. Yes. Like that, he was sort of, that, yep. that professor was sort of a Pied Piper for you. Yes. Uh, but led you into this career that you've had for all these years. Right. And I'm very interested in the part, I'm, I'm very interested in the patriarchy in general um, mm -hmm. as a woman comic and a woman living in the world. And the part where um, you don't really, like war is bad and I hate it and I want nothing to do with it. But the part where war created an opening for you. Um, right. And it's so interesting if you think about the history of the 60s and war and also the women's movement and all of those things sort of um, coalescing and uh, yeah and then you got to go to grad school at a time that and, and I was just thinking when you said that you thought you wanted to be a teacher well there weren't that like if you were a smart person that that was what you did when right. you know if you if you had any kind of acumen in in the academics you would certainly become a teacher mm -hmm. yes. so it's uh, it's a fascinating tale yeah. So were there um, other women in your graduate program, too? When I first started, um, that, that first class we, they took in, there were five women in it out of, like, about 15 students. Um, but they were uh, covering all of geology and geophysics. Um, but there were never, I never had a woman student in my own field, in my same field. Mm -hmm. And I never had a woman professor in my own field. How was that for you in school? Was it hard because of that? or were you, Well, I think you initially I, I didn't know enough to think about it, you know, to, to worry about it. What, when it first came to me, I think, was right after I graduated, well, before I graduated, I was interviewed for the position here at UMass. And I went to, in those days, you went to visit with the dean uh, during your interview trip. And the dean asked me, would I be, did I think I would be a good role model for women students? And my thought, which I didn't voice because I was too scared to say it, was the heck with the students. Who's going to be my role model? <laughs> you know? Yeah, seriously. Wow. Because, you know, I was interviewing in a department that was 25 males. And I had never had, as I said, a, a female professor in my field you know, as a, as a role model for me, so. So can we talk more about this a little bit? About, and, I mean, about science, but also about patriarchy. Um, <laughs> so let's talk. They we go together, I'm afraid. No, I'm sure. <laughs> and so did you, did you have any, um, any pushback in your department when you were hired? Also, did you get any pushback from students who maybe weren't ready to, like, hear a professor who was a woman? Um, in general, uh, my department was really, was really good. Um, they were they were very supportive, um, and you know every now and then there'd be some little weird thing going on that you knew was happening because you sort of weren't in the club, but for most of the part they were they were excellent. And with students, it was a little hard to tell, and I'm not sure that I was aware of any. Um, I wasn't aware of any students who, you know, dissed me or didn't take my course because they thought I didn't, you know, I was female or something. So it wasn't, there weren't really too many problems. I mean, as I said that I was aware of, there may have been things going on that I didn't know anything about. Yeah, it's interesting, somebody in our department was recently pointing out that about one third of the faculty are women right now. Yes, and I was, I was like, oh wow, it's just that? Because I, you <laughs> doing, think of it doing more. geophysics, I've had all women advisors, <laughs> like yeah. Lori yes. has advised me doing paleomagnetism, and then we have yeah. everybody I, doing yeah. geology and physics in our department yeah. are, um, yeah. are women. Are women yeah. yeah, and it just worked out that way. I don't think that's the norm. Yeah. But it's interesting how like my perspective was skewed. I was like, really, it seems like there's a lot of women. But, but, yeah. And I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't say that, that it's you know in any way um, perfect. Oh, nothing is. Yeah. Or even getting close to it. We have a daughter who um, is also a geologist, and she's. Well, it would be her birthright. Yes, we <laughs> didn't push her, but <laughs> but anyways, what she said. So she's at the postdoc level right now, and she said to me at one point, she's very aware of, 
you know, looking for things that are going on and, and sensitive to them. And she said to me one time, she said, but mom, I thought you fixed all this. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of like, it's a long-term, it's a long-term project. It's a lot um, to ask of you, too. <laughs> yeah, well, she meant me in a sort of a more collective state, uh, but yeah. <laughs> she doesn't, you know, realize that we have made big gains. Well, and I think there's still plenty of room. And thinking about what Laura said about how the, the so many of the advisors that she's had are women, I mean, you paved the way for that, and it's probably no uh, coincidence that there are more women in the areas that you have worked in because you've paved the way for women to be comfortable and safe at work. So, I mean, yeah. put a feather in your cap, lady. Well, I think it helps, you know, having once you have a one or two or three, and then you, you know, it's much easier yeah. to bring in and certainly no problem finding excellent women right. to hire so fantastic so we've done yeah. so um do you want to talk about maybe some places that you've worked that you've had a good time what are some of your favorite places that you've worked oh yes yeah. so i've been really lucky to work in a lot of a lot of gorgeous places um two outstanding ones i have spent probably 10 12 years working in patagonia in southern um, south america and um, that's been great. It's a beautiful country and wide open and, and um, good. Yeah, the wind blows really hard. But <laughs> it's a roaring 40s. <laughs> you have yes. to uh, hold on to the truck door all the time or it'll fly off its hinges. But, um, and there's some really good problems, problems to work on there. What about kind some, of problems? When you're talking about problems, uh, what do we mean? Okay, so what I work on there is there are lots of young Lava flows in Patagonia. It's along the western coast of South America. It's all a big subduction zone. So there's a lot of, there's a big plate going down from the Pacific down under South America and produces a lot of volcanoes and a lot of volcanic activity. Young, and they're all young. So in that place, in that work, I study how does the magnetic field vary over, say, the last five million years. We know that it reverses um, quite often. But there are also lots of smaller variations in it. It sort of wobbles around. And, and we know this pretty well in the northern hemisphere because a lot of people work up here. But we don't have a good idea of the southern hemisphere. So I was working on a big project down there that was sampling these young lava flows, measuring their paleomagnetism, and then statistically looking at the directions and the variations that I see in them. And when you talk about working there, you're obviously a professor, so you're busy during the school year. So are you just going there in the summers and, like, breaks and stuff? Or what well, happens? Yeah. Well, the good part about working in South America is the seasons are reversed. Oh, right. So you can go down in December and stay through January, and it's summer down there. And you, we have a nice break here at UMass because classes don't start up until the third week in January. So you have, you have that time okay. to work down there. And what I mean working... You collect all the material down there, and then it's all brought back here, and all the measurements are done in a laboratory. Oh, okay. All right. I collect samples from the field, samples of these rocks, and I bring them back to my lab, which Laura is, knows all about doing. Yeah, <laughs> she has yeah. collected rocks. in. She, Laura worked in Vancouver Island and collected rocks and oh, brought wow. them back. All right. So, so that's a great place to work. And the other place that I work um, that's really beautiful is Norway. And here the rocks are very, very old, um, a billion years old, many of them. Wow. And um, so we're looking there at trying to figure out where continents were in the past and where Baltica, where Norway was at different times in its geologic history. So that's a great, it's a great place to work, too. And then there's the Terra San Pedro, Hawaii. Well, Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've worked in Hawaii. I've worked up in northern Canada where we had to fly in on little float planes to wherever we were working. And so I've, I've been lucky to work in a lot of really wonderful places. But with that's, good, that's why some of, us, yeah. some of us go into geology is because we like to travel. Expe <laughs> little expeditions. Yeah. Expeditions, yeah. yeah. Figure out a geologic problem. I, pipe. I need Get to do science in the most beautiful place on earth. I'm going for science. That's it. That's it. But I think it. to geologists, almost every place is beautiful. Of course. Because, you know, yes. they all have different kinds of rocks, different histories, different yeah. problems. Yeah. 
You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today are Lori Brown and Chris Condit from the Geoscience Department. My co-host is comedian Jennifer Miskowski. You can find Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, um, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Okay, back to it. Maybe we should talk about your lab a little bit. So um, what I want to do when I collect these rocks in the field, I take them, I drill them with a, a, hand, a drill that's a converted chainsaw and drill little one-inch cores, which we orient in the field so you know exactly how it's sitting in the field and you mark it and record directions. So I can bring it back into the laboratory and... Um, then I have various kinds of machines that can measure that, the magnetization that's recorded in the rocks. We call it a remnant magnetization. It's, it's locked in. Like when the lava f- flow cools and it gets down below a certain temperature, which is about um, 580 degrees centigrade. centigrade, the magnetization locks into the rock and it won't, doesn't change unless it, it gets somehow heated up again or, or disturbed or chemically changed. And so I have a, right now what I use is called a cryogenic magnetometer, which we have a, there's a device which needs to be kept very, very cold. So it's kept down at the temperature of liquid helium, um, which is like minus 200 and something degrees. I don't, I can't convert it to Fahrenheit, but it's very cold. And um, the, it, can sense the direction, the magnetization as a vector in this core. And so I can measure these cores and then calculate what the magnetic field direction is in the core because I know how the core was oriented in the field. And we don't just take one sample here, one sample there. You take collections of samples. So one lava flow, I'd maybe take eight or ten cores from it. And I can then average them together to get some statistical um, control on what the direction is that I get out of them. So can I ask, what does what is the core, um, like what is the size of a core that you take? It's one inch in diameter. And then how? And then I, we drill them maybe five, eight inches long. Okay. So we bring it back as one long piece, and then we cut it up into little one-inch lengths. So the machine just measures one-inch diameter, one-inch long core. Okay, and then... If several lava flows have happened over an area, then you might have several layers of rock, right? So they would all have a different... They might, or they might be all the same. If they came out really quickly, like... Like one after another? Yep, like in Hawaii now, you know, where there's big eruptions going on sort of all the time. They should all have just about the same direction. Okay. If they came out, one came out, and then maybe 10,000 years went past, and then the next one came out, its direction could be different. Um, or if the magnetic field reversed after one came out and then the other flow on top of it would have the opposite direction. Right. So, you know, that's why you take quite a few cores in each flow and you sample all those flows together. And, and when and when it all flies, like how, is there an average depth of how, I mean, I guess there couldn't be because everything's going to be different, right? About how much, if you're, if you're taking a core of something, um, do you know in advance how many flows are in there well, um, from, from prior research or from other people's yeah, research? Or? Yeah. So like where I work in Patagonia, I work with a um, geologist who studies the lava flows themselves. He's a, we call him a petrologist, so he's studying the chemistry of the rocks. But he's worked in this area for a long time. And we go to places where you can actually see the lava flows. So we don't drill down vertically through one down into another that way. We're working on a face where you can see the lava stamp. Okay. So like maybe you're working in a little stream valley that, you know, eroded them out and there's this cliff with one, two, three, four, however many lava One lava flow on top of another. Right, right. And you can see which one is which. And you can see. Okay. In my imagination, when you were talking about drilling, I was thinking we're just going straight down. So No. no, And that's not what we're doing. So I was imagining incorrectly. Yeah, that's okay. Let the record show. Because that's what a lot of drilling is, too. So it's an yeah. understandable. I mean, they do, like, people yeah. do that kind I of drilling, but it's much bigger scale kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
And so one reason people are interested in those details of the magnetic field is to understand what it's doing today, right? Right. So and what are some of the big questions about well, like, the magnetic field right uh, now? Just a couple um, of weeks ago, there was quite a bit of, of news about the fact that the, the North Pole, the North Magnetic Pole of the Earth is not exactly at the rotation axis, but if you, if you took your compass and wandered around to find exactly where um, the North Pole was, magnetic pole, it's up in the northern Canadian islands. But what's happened recently over the past few years is it's moved quite fast. Mm. It's been moving slowly for the, over the last hundreds of years. But it started, and in, in one of the headlines I saw said the magnetic pole is racing towards Russia or something, you know. <laughs> Some sort of it political was, maneuvering. <laughs> yes, it, that's what it sounded like. But um, part of the problem is is, is you know, we don't really know how fast the, the magnetic pole sort of moves around like that. We know from looking at paleomagnetism, if you looked at 10,000 years worth of data and averaged it together, it would come up the rotation axis of the Earth. So what's happening is the, I can't do this on the radio, <laughs> use my hands, yeah. but um, the magnetic field is sort of moving, or its pole is sort of moving around the, um, the rotation axis, and it sometimes moves faster than others. Now, some people it, get really worried that um, maybe the magnetic field is going to reverse. That why that's why it's moving fast. Um, reversals seem to take ten thousand five five to ten thousand years. So it's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow and the field will have reversed. Um, some people do worry about um, oddities in the magnetic field interfering with um, satellite communications mm -hmm. and things like that, but we really haven't, haven't seen much evidence of that, so we're not too worried about that. So if we were in the middle of a magnetic reversal, would there be things that we would be worried about? Would there be well, serious consequences? Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> the magnetic field has reversed um, a large number of times. Um, About once every, what, half a million years? Yeah, once every half to a million years. It's not a regular, it's not on a regular pattern. Um, and when that happens, the magnetic field does decrease in strength. Now, one of the important benefits of the magnetic field to us today is it um, warps the um, cosmic rays that are coming from the sun. Um, around us, because it, we've got this magnetic field around us, and so the solar winds get pushed aside by the magnetic field, and it keeps us on the surface of the Earth from having so much cos um, cosmic input. So people are worried about when the field reverses and the field gets smaller, that maybe there'll be more cosmic rays coming in, and that this would cause um, disruption of life in various ways. Mm. But we haven't really seen that in the geologic record because the, we've seen times when there have been extinctions, yeah. but they don't seem to be related to magnetic reversals. They're related to other kinds of big events. On the other hand, mm -hmm. it, could, it could really affect our satellite communications. It could affect like that. Except that it's happening, it happens so slowly. Oh, okay, yeah. Or it's electronics, not, would it affect electronics? Yeah, electronics yeah, and electronics. stuff, you know. But it doesn't like go, yeah. you know, it's going to take hundreds of years, probably mm -hmm. thousands of years to reverse, so it's not going to be, I mean, a hundred years from now, our communications and electronics are going to be entirely different than they are now today. <laughs> right. so. If they even still exist. Yes, that's right. So it, it's, it's not really a worry. Maybe we could shift gears and talk to Chris about how you ended up studying volcanoes. Yeah, well, when I was in high school in Northern Virginia, um, my biology teacher, or one of the biology teachers in, in the high school, had a, a group that went spelunking, caving. And they would uh, grab a bunch of high school students who wanted to go caving and, and uh, pile in a couple of cars and drive out to the Shenandoah Valley and, and go crawl through caves, which I thought was just great fun, you know? Um, and so when I, went to college at William and Mary, I, I had to take a science course. And so I signed up for geology because I thought I'd like to know how caves formed. And, and uh, just fell in love with the, the, 
science. I, I just, I liked the scientific process, so I liked being outside. My family grew up camping and, 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 and hiking and stuff like that. And so that was a perfect combination for me, uh, being, being outside and, and, um, and doing, doing science with it. And, and from there, um, I decided to pursue a, a master's degree and I had always fallen in love with the idea of being out in the Southwest and ended up uh, getting accepted at uh, Northern Arizona University for my master's degree and, and uh, came out there and, and uh, I remember pulling into to Flagstaff and the department chair, the Northern Arizona University had had a four-person geology department and they had just expanded to eight, so they had four new professors and a whole master's program had started um, the year before, and it, but this chair of the department met me at, uh, in Flagstaff and put me up for a few nights while I was looking for a place to live, and the very next morning I get in and we go down to the western end of the Grand Canyon, and, and it was just awesome. <laughs> it was <laughs> just mind-blowing to be walking through this, you know, wall of rocks that was a mile deep, one layer after another after another, places that you read about in textbooks, but just blew my mind. And then the Colorado River, you know, eroding away at the base of it, and it was just, you know, I... But you became a volcanologist. Well, I did. <laughs> I did. It was, it was, a uh, well, it turns out that Flagstaff, where Northern Arizona University is located, is in the center of a volcanic field. Uh, it has a mile-high mountain behind the city, to, just to the to the north of the the town, um, just a couple, a few miles, and um, it's a big stratovolcano. And then there's lots of little cinder cones around it, and and an easy target for doing research that you could get funding for was to map lava flows. And so I found a little volcano out on the Navajo Reservation, it was on the northern extreme of the of the volcanic field and and it hadn't been figured out yet so there were lava flows and cinder cones and I went out and mapped that as and got funding from the Museum of Northern Arizona in part to uh, to create a geologic map of that and then get some chemical analyses and try and understand how it related to some of the faulting and folding that went on out in that area and uh, so that was essentially, you know, how I got into it. And then I ended up with getting this job with the U.S. Geological Survey initially as a student counting craters on the images of, of Mars. And I was, there was about half a dozen of us that were doing that crater counting. And when they'd completed the, we had completed the job, I, I took an interest in actually trying to analyze the data these other people just counted the craters and reported their data. And so, you know, I started working on putting it together for uh, a paper. And the U.S. Geological Survey took me on. While I was doing all that, I was also, um, I'd, gotten a, I'd gotten a private pilot's license between my junior and senior years in college um, because I had a summer that was, um, I was supposed to be doing ROTC stuff and had gotten fired from ROTC because I was physically unfit for the service. Huh. And, well, I had asthma, you know, so I got a 4F. So that was very good for me. Lucky. Yeah, because in 69, a, yeah. a lieutenant had a two-week life expanse in, in, right. in Vietnam. But anyway, so I decided that summer I would, you know, use some of the, some of the construction work I was doing, money to a private pilot's license. And, but that, that worked me into being able to fly for the U.S. Geological Survey because anyway, I, for various reasons, went ahead and got a flight instructor's rating and um, just because I thought then I'd be a better pilot and could survive problems if they happened, one of which had. But, but anyway, um, so I flew airplanes for the USGS and did geology until I decided to go back and get a PhD at University of New Mexico in 78. 
my master's thesis I got involved with because it was it was a local problem and living in a volcanic field just invites curiosity about you know how it got there and that kind of thing and I found that area that hadn't been worked on before and could get funding to, to do it but I also happen to have a professor in the department at Northern Arizona University who who looked at me and said you know Chris what you really need to do is find the most beautiful part of the world and convince somebody that they should pay you to work in it. <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> I just this. looked over <laughs> to the next volcanic field to the east and the south on the edge of the Colorado Plateau up at 7,000 feet. And it's beautiful ponderosa pines and spruce and, and uh, it was gorgeous. And lo and behold, about that time, the U.S. Geological Survey had become interested in trying to uh, figure out geothermal potential for, for energy because this was in the late 70s and people were starting to realize there was a finite amount of oil and we needed to start looking to other sources. And so I, figured, I, I looked at, at uh, the geothermal um, program that the survey sponsored and realized that they needed to understand that volcanic field under, to see if there was a possible place to drill for hot rock. I need to ask a, a definition question. Yes. When we're talking about volcanic field, yes. what does that mean, really? Because ah, really I'm not really yeah. familiar with that term, and I'm imagining something that I don't think is true. Okay, <laughs> what you, uh, you can imagine um, an area that is made up of lots and lots of little cinder cones, these little piles, piles okay. of cinders that are okay. like three or 400 feet high, and from the center of it, it's erupting. And so magma is, is, is throwing rocks up into the air and oozing out the side underneath the other cinders and lava flows are flowing out. Now imagine in the Springerville volcanic field, a field that's 60 miles wide and 40, 50 miles north to south, mostly flat lying, more or less flat lying, but it's liquid, so it's flowing as downhill as it can, but just layer upon layer of lava, lava flows and a cinder cone about every two miles. So the miles. cinder cone is part of the field. Yes. Okay, good. So, That's helpful so, to understand. So, so this particular, yeah, this particular volcanic field has probably one cinder cone every six square miles or something like that with lava flows that range from 15 miles long to a mile or two long. And some of them are, are very thick. Some of them are... 30 or 40 feet thick, but most of them are five or six feet thick, and they flow out, and, and one flows out on top of another on top of another, and you go out and you take a topographic map and air photos, and you figure out the edge of the lava flow, and that's called mapping. So, and you did that in the plane? No, well, I, I did that. You were part of the magic of it in the plane? Well, yeah, <laughs> actually, actually, in 73, I bought my per first airplane. It was a 1950. Uh, 1946 Piper Cub, a J3 Cub, a little two-place toy. Lovely, lovely little airplane. But then in 75, I bought the airplane I still own, um, a four-place Cessna, a 1952 Cessna. And I used that to help me map uh -huh. because I could fly out over the areas that I was going to be looking at in the next week or so and, and look at it. But I used mostly air photos that had been taken by aerial survey okay and 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 topographic but, maps but you have to walk this all out on the ground you got to walk it out on the ground to but okay in springerville there are how many volcanoes there's 451 450 volcanoes so in can this I, one field can i ask a clarifying question is each volcano just one eruption in this that's case an, that's another good question um there are most of those this is a volcanic field that's called a monogenetic volcanic field and that means each 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 vent or each cinder cone erupts over a very short period of time, probably six months to six or eight years. And we see examples of those. You've probably heard of Paracutine, which is a, a volcano not. that developed in a cornfield in Mexico in, in the late part of the World War II period. It was a place with no volcanoes, no and all volca of a sudden there was well, a volcano. there were volcanoes around, but never in this particular spot. Uh -huh. And this farmer was raising corn there. And boom, this volcanic field or this volcano starts erupting. So a fissure opens up and magma <laughs> comes up in the middle of the cornfield and cinders start. Were, was there any warning of it? Um, 
Because no, that would be a real surprise, no, I would think, if you're out case, there with your plow. In this case, it was a surprise. Yeah. Present day, we have, we have enough seismic, seismic stations so that as this magma is moving up, it's pushing aside the rock, and that's causing the rock to break. And we call those seismic tremors. And our harmonic tremors are the particular kind of a vibration that causes by, is caused by magma intruding through the crust. And so we would likely know it. The one thing we haven't touched on um, is the astronaut training. Ah, yes, astronaut training. So it, it turns out that uh, for once, um, and, and I say this because I started back to get my PhD so that I could get back into the USGS as research geologist instead of a master's degree person who worked for other PhDs in that group because that's sort of the way you get to lead your own real scientific projects. Um, and then I finished my PhD and Ronald Reagan hit the scene and instead of having a better government, he wanted less government. Mm. Um, and so the money wasn't there. So long story short, I, ended up, I did end up meeting Laurie and ended up coming back here and eventually becoming a professor in the department. Um, in part because they didn't want her to go somewhere else. It was nepotism, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just my good luck that I met a woman they did not think was replaceable, and they're probably right. Um, He's really into you. <laughs> I am. Every time he starts talking about you, Lori, his eyes light up. I don't know if you notice. I mean, I know I'm dead serious. I'm watching. I'm watching the play here, and and Lori's just like you know sitting here like a normal person, and, uh, and Chris, Chris's eyes are on fire. All right, yes. that's how it should be. Yeah, Good, yeah. I accept. She's my paleo magician. Yeah, there yeah, you right. go. All right, I'm sorry. I interrupted just to talk about love. I kept. Yeah. I keep doing that. I'm sorry. Continue. So you came here. You got a job here. Then. Yeah. Well. Oh. Okay. Get to the astronauts. Here. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, what <laughs> happened was I I had gotten I had gotten my um, my pilot's license and my flight instructor's rating and 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 that good stuff. So I I did that and I while I was at the USGS, part of my geologic work involved mapping on using uh, satellite images to map um, Mars. So I mapped a geologic map. I made the first geologic map of the South Pole of Mars, and then when I came here. I got involved with teaching here at the university and also teaching field mapping uh, because I was doing a lot of that professionally for the USGS. I mapped the northwest flank of Mauna Loa for the US Geological Survey uh, just right after I finished my PhD because two of my advisors were survey geologists who knew I could do the job they had trained me to do and that's they were working on putting together a geologic map of the whole big island. But anyway, so here I was, one of my colleagues who uh, what, had finished his master's at, at uh, University of New Mexico, had gone down to Houston after he'd gotten his PhD and started working on spacesuit design and, and, and working with the astronauts. And in 2008, he got in touch with me, called me and said, hey, do you have a, do you have a way of getting in touch with that Wolf and George Ulrich? And, and, uh, and oh, by the way, do you want to come down and help uh, think about putting together a white paper to train astronauts? Because we've decided that it's time to get geology back into the geologic training or the training of, of astronauts. Partly because I, I just had these skills. I had done geologic mapping uh, on planets. I had done volcanic mapping uh, on the Earth. I was a pilot. I had about... Mm, 3,500, 4,000 hours of flying time. Uh, so I was a good candidate for being an instructor for those people. So he got me involved in putting together the curriculum for their training and then actually doing the training. And so, you know, we would um, teach, teach them classroom stuff and then take them out in the field in the summers and, and teach them. But astronauts are uh, a very busy group and very hard to find time to work with. They're ex extremely, um, extremely bright, very driven people. Um, the crew that I worked mostly with was the uh, uh, class of, well, I started working in 2010 with a full-up Apollo-like training exercise where we had two rovers that were going out and, and they spent six days 
two people in the big big SUV is the way to think about it. Uh, and there was a geologist and a and a um, a geologist and an astronaut in, in the rover. And they lived in those things continuously for the six days, and they would go about 10 or so miles a day and make three or four stops, and they'd get out and, and go on a, an, a, a little excursion, a planned mission to sample rocks, just as if they were on the moon or on Mars. And then they'd get back in with their samples of rocks that they very carefully documented. And these are all highly choreographed little stops that they go on to try and characterize these rocks based on a photogeologic map they'd put, on, put together of this area around north of Flagstaff. This is where the training area was, in the San Francisco volcanic field. So anyway, that was in 2010, and that was uh, with the class of 2009, a bunch of astronauts and some other ones, too. And there were some uh, numer numerous other astronauts we went out training. Meteor Crater, just east of Flagstaff, was about 30 miles, no, about 40 miles. Uh, was an area where we, it's a, it's a big impact crater. So we, we went out and mapped the impact ejecta with, with the crew um, and, and spent, you know, a day mapping that whole area and falling over, over the crater. And so these guys had some, because, you know, craters are really important for planetary geologists because they're on all these planets that don't have atmospheres like Earth. I mean, we have a number of astroblems, you know, craters on, on the Earth, you know, several hundred, but but the atmosphere protects them, and it's so active. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, um, I most heavily was involved with the class of 2013, and it's been a real treat over the last six months where a lot of those astronauts who are astronaut candidates for the first year um, have now they're now on station and on the space station, actually up there. You know, Anne McLaren is up there. And so what you're saying is you have friends on the space station. Yeah. <laughs> Can you call them up? I probably could, you know. I, I don't. They're busy. They're doing stuff, you know. Cool. So I think it would be a good time to shift to the last segment of the show, but I want to just give you both a chance before we do that to talk about anything related to your research that might not have come up that you think is interesting or exciting. Well, one thing I should just add is that we both um, have spent time being field assistant to the other one. Yes. <laughs> nice. So when Chris works in, yeah. he goes back to this field in Arizona every year, practically. Yeah. yeah. And I go along as the field assistant. And he's come down with me several times to Patagonia. Do you, do you um, get a stipend, or is it free labor? It's free labor. I get the trip down there, and she feeds me, and, and, you know, and, I, and Chile. Yeah, there. right. And so he feeds me, and when I'm, you know, helping him, and so it's fun that way that we get to do do things together. Yeah, it's just a yeah. chance to go on an expedition together. A beautiful yeah. symbiosis. Right. Yeah, what we've really never is. done is we've never written a paper together. Oh, really? But we yeah. want to do that also with our daughter. But we, now that our daughter's a geologist, we keep joking that we're going to write a paper, the three of us. Oh, okay. All together. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. So now it's time for the last segment of the show, a little game I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Um, and so my guests have provided me with some acronyms, and we're going to give them to Jennifer to try to guess. I'll do my best. So the first acronym comes from Lori Brown. It is N R M. N R M. So it's related to your um, to the to the pole stuff probably then. Um, hmm. Which is I don't know. Ah, oh, this is a hard game for me. I'm not it's good at making things M, up. It's a think of the M isn't my area. Think, think of the M part. Sorry, yeah. Well that's uh, magnetic, right? Oh, yeah. So then the N normal could, could be radiological. Could <laughs> Look at guess. It is magnetism, radiological magnetism. I like it. Sounds yeah, good. It's, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually sort of good because you know these yeah. these magnetic fields point in a direction. Yeah, but it, we use it for natural remnant magnetization. All right, well, but you're close. So that's that. With your hint, I got a little bit of something. Right, that's the original direction we measure in a rock. It's sort of natural remnant magnetization. Yeah. Okay, so we've got some acronyms from Chris now. Um, the first one is EVA. EVA. Every 
volcano always. <laughs> I like it. I like that. <laughs> yeah, but what happens when an astronaut and a geologist get out of their vehicle? What are they doing? They're going on an extravehicular activity. Are you uh -huh. telling me in the volcano related, the volcano related <laughs> scientist had a V1 that isn't volcano? Right. That is a trick question and I do not uh, accept it. it I do not accept one. it. <laughs> I think that uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming in, you guys. Yay! Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Nice. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today were Chris Condit and Lori Brown from the Geoscience Department. My co-host was comedian Jennifer Miskowski. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab and the Polymer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please go give us a like and a share and check out our awesome catalog of old episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for WMUA News coming right up.